like everything in life, it is one FFmpeg command, but <laughs> it'll take you three hours to figure out what that command actually is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so you want to do a little follow-up? Follow-up. I was I, As soon as I said that, I was like, oh, God, that sounded a lot like the prompt. Just the way you said it. I know. Uh, all right, let's do that again. Hey, so you want to do a little bit of follow-up? Follow-up. God, I did it again! God! <laughs> this is the worst. All right, somebody else talk. Don't don't phrase it as a question, Casey. All right, let's do some follow-up. Ah, see, you're right. That's the key. John, you're so smart. Anyway, so uh, let's talk about uh, Crossy Road and in-app purchases and top grossing lists. And I'm not sure which one of you put this in the show notes, but it was not me. It was me. Uh, we were talking about the uh, financial prospects for Crossy Road, indirectly talking about the financial prospects. And Joe F. Tweet was one of the first people to tweet that uh, when we're looking at the top grossing lists, uh, he says the those ads won't show up as part of the top grossing. Uh, only in-app purchases will. Um, and I think it's also because that they appear to be third-party ads and not ads through Apple's iAd system. I don't know if, uh, if you did like Apple's iAds, if that would contribute to your top grossing. But certainly, if you're getting paid through a third party for the ads in your thing, uh, that that won't contribute. Although, it's, isn't it kind of interesting that uh, Apple doesn't, as far as I know, ask for a 30% cut of uh, ads that you run that are not through Apple? Yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised they allow that at all. Um, I, I think the only reason they do is because people were doing ads in their app before iAd existed. And then and I, I think Apple just doesn't really care that much about iAd to, to really force that to, to be the case. Um, but yeah, I, it is kind of weird. Like you can't do a third party credit card processing thing for in-app purchase, but they allow you to have third party ads. Yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Not that uh, that ever happens with Apple and their rules. And then uh, would you like to talk about our friend of the show, Steve Lubitz, and what he had to tell us? Yeah, so shortly after we recorded uh, last week's show, we talked a lot about Crossy Road and its monetization strategy. The game has changed a little bit of its monetization strategy, and uh, Steve wrote in with uh, one aspect of that that you could buy what they call a coin doubler. Uh, you get you earn coins at a faster rate, and you get a bonus 1,000 coins for three ninety nine. That's That's uh, buying the piggy bank. So there is something that doesn't change the gameplay and, you know, sort of getting an extra life or walking on water or slowing down time when the train is coming or anything like that. It changes the monetization. It changes parts of the game that are part of monetization. So when I saw this, I said, okay, this is, you know, this is like a power up. You earn coins uh, faster, right? But what can you do with those coins? You're just, you know, using them to get a, more chances at the gumball machine to get your characters. And I, one thing we didn't mention on the last show, speaking of the characters, is that the gumball machine is random and it doesn't care like any gumball machine doesn't care what things you already have. So as you accumulate uh, players from the gumball machine, you'll end up getting duplicates. You're like, you know, you get another uh, crazy old Ben for the 15th time. So it's not like you're going to inevitably get all the characters. And I don't even know if the gumball machine vends all the characters. Some of them may be purchase only. Um, but they added a bunch of new characters. They added a thing where you can try out a new character for a short period of time. And then at the end of that time, they let you buy it at a discounted rate. Um, all sorts of new things are showing up in updates to this thing. They, they're further emphasizing the the thing that was always there, I think, the little share sheet that lets you share like a screenshot of your score and your death. Now that is much more prominent and makes you notice it. It's either more prominent or it didn't exist before. I certainly didn't even know it existed before because I'm not looking for a share button. And now it's more in my face. And not only do I see it in the game, but I see things that other people post. So anyway, the, the monetization strategy of Crossy Road is fluid and is moving more towards 
things that are slightly more aggressive about getting you to uh, to buy things than it was before. I, uh, and I don't think that's because the developer is desperate for money, um, because all these things are still pretty mild in the grand scheme of things. They're not they're they're not punitive. It's still entirely you know for fun and uh, not you know pay to win type of gameplay. Still you know even with the coin double, nothing affects the actual game, which is avoiding being hit by cars and falling in the water and being hit by trains. Um, if it ever makes that turn, I'm sure we will note it on the program. But I'm I'm pretty confident now, especially with seeing Crossy Road climb the charts, that they're doing just fine with this game. Yeah, in fact, I mean it's been a pretty big difference. So in I, I would say the changes they're making are working to bring them more money because uh, they've made a pretty large jump in the top grossing chart since last week. Like when we, we were talking, they were somewhere around the 200 range uh, of top grossing, and now they're like in the 60s. Um, so they, they whatever they're doing, you know, the changes they're making are working to bring them in more money that's more proportional to the actual downloads they're getting. I don't know the timing, though. I don't know if they started climbing the charts before or after they rolled out these changes. I don't know the, the specifics. So it could just be, you know, gaining traction from word of mouth and, and you know, I, it's so hard to say. I don't know. Anyway, it's still a good game. You should still check it out. Tiff is now totally hooked. and Yeah, I hopped over her name earlier. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah she, she's wow. very mad at you for continuing to move your score forward past hers. <laughs> I just I just stopped moving it forward once I became the number one in my game central list. So I, I, beat, <laughs> I beat my son's score, I beat Jason's score, and now I haven't really played that much. Oh, goodness. What is your current score? Uh, my score is depressing because I was trying to beat Jason's score. Like, I you know i couldn't get him to accept my son's friend request so like maybe he didn't want to accept the request of someone whose score we know would be above his so i'm like all right i'm gonna have to beat it and his score was like 193 and i got 191 and i had that for a while and then i got 192 and i had that for a while and boy there's nothing worse than than seeing yourself die when you're like one hop away from tie and two hops mm-hmm. away from you know anyway and then I eventually got 216, and I'm depressed by the 216 because when I got the 216, my death was super stupid. I just got, I was just so happy that I had won. It was like, okay, now I don't really need to go any farther, and I could have gone much farther. It was just a stupid death. So I'm kind of off that, and I've gone back to desert golf. <laughs> <laughs> Golfing. Yeah, whatever. I still haven't tried that one, but I am enjoying Crossy Road more than I probably should. It is a good game. So we should probably talk about what Daniel Jalkit said about push notification spam filtering. Marco, did you get a chance to read this earlier today? I read this 10 minutes ago. Yeah. So what what we were talking about last episode and uh, what Daniel was kind of replying to was what uh, especially Marco had talked about with regard to push notification spam and and how the three of us really didn't come up with a terribly awesome way to, for Apple to filter the spam or take action on the spam. And so one of the things we talked about was, well, maybe we could, they could enlist users to, to help filter the spam and, and notify Apple of it. And so Daniel had an interesting point, and I'm going to read from this post that we'll put in the show notes. Apple can still use its unique role as the creator of all things iOS to devise a system through which they would themselves be virtually subscribed to all unremarkable notifications from a particular app's developer. Think about the worst notification spam you've seen. In my experience, it's not super personalized. In fact, it's liable to be an inducement to keep using the app, to advance in a game, to become more engaged, etc. I think Apple would collect a ton of useful information about spammy developers if they simply arranged that every app on this app store is capable of sending push notifications included among its list of registered devices, a pseudo device in Cupertino, whose sole purpose was to receive notifications, scan them for spammy keywords, apply Bayesian filters, and flag questionable questionable developers. I think it's a really good idea. That seems like it'd be hard as crap to put together. 
But it is a very interesting point. I mean, when you are in control of the entire ecosystem, you probably can get away with doing something like that. But And I was curious to hear what you guys thought. See, it's a really good idea. Um, you know, so what, what he said earlier in the post is like one of the problems is they can't just run these kind of filters server side because everything's encrypted end to end. So in order to see the content of a message, you have to be one of the recipients of the message. And uh, and that's that's actually not entirely true. Um, when you when you send a push notification request, uh, you send it over SSL, but the server on the other side has the decryption key, and you're just sending a JSON dictionary. So like your server is not encrypting that data separately from SSL. Um, you know that that encryption is happening after it gets into Apple's hands. So his so Daniel's assumption early on is actually not correct that they they could be doing the server side if they wanted to, uh, without having like a, this big pseudo device. Uh, I think there's two problems with it. Number one, it would have to, it, it would almost certainly be abused and worked around very quickly. Um, for instance, developers could start using different schemes. So, for instance, background refresh, you can just send whatever you want as the payload of a silent notification for background refresh that doesn't show any, any text to the user. Then you can have your app generate a local notification based on whatever you want that says whatever you want from that. That's actually how I send all of mine. All every every overcast notification is messageless. It is a content available notification, and then and then the app wakes up, performs a sync, and then for any new uh, podcast episodes it finds, it shows a notification from their title. Uh, so all of the text that is being shown to the user in a push notification is not going through Apple servers, and will require the app to be launched to generate. And of course, you know developers would very quickly work around this kind of system if it was in place uh they would you know just they would show the text in different ways they would respond respond to silent notifications or they would uh, you know encrypt the messages and then decrypt them with a custom scheme with the app or whatever so that that method wouldn't entirely work what what would work better uh and and what would actually be a prerequisite to having that kind of setup at all is if apple cared that's the biggest problem here is that it really it really <laughs> seems like Apple doesn't care about this problem by their complete inaction and complete in, uh, seeming seeming inability and unwillingness to enforce this rule and then to even break it themselves with one of their teams. I, I, I think it's very clear that Apple simply doesn't think this is a problem because when Apple thinks something is a problem, it tends to get attention. It tends to get addressed. Uh, and then when Apple, you know, Apple has kind of this tunnel vision sometimes uh, where Whatever they care about, whatever the hot thing is at that moment, it gets this laser focus. They they do crazy things. It gets remade or gets massive progress made on it, and then it gets left alone, untouched for ten years. And I think this is one of those things where, like, like this is an area of the App Store that they just don't care about. Like much of the App Store, honestly. I mean, most of the App Store does not see rapid change. Uh, the policies sure don't. And I think it's just very clear this is a problem. This is a problem to to geeks like us and and people who are as picky as me, but Apple does not think this is a problem because if, if they thought it was a problem, they would be doing more to enforce the rule, and they're not. I think it's another reason why the the Jocko proposed solution, ignoring encryption, ignoring uh, fake local notifications, stuff like that, even if all that work, all those workarounds didn't exist, you would still this would still require apple to do two things one thing that apple doesn't like to do and one thing that they're not very good at the thing they don't like to do is this would require them to essentially log all 
push notifications, right? Yeah. And or store them in some way so that you could verify that they were sent for some, you know, they would have to store some window of time. And the reason they would have to store them is because the second thing that I don't think they'd be very good at is figuring out if something is in violation of the guidelines by looking at the content computer wise, you know, spam detection. And to do that well, you, it's not easy to do that well uh, and do it fast at the same time. So it's not like they could watch up all the traffic as it goes by, categorize it as spam or not spam, and then discard it. Because what if they got it wrong and they want to retrain their filter or whatever? So it would have to be stored for some period of time. So even if they could uh, man in the middle everything, decrypt everything because they control the key servers and all this other stuff, like undo all of their end-to-end encryption, look at the content, great. Now you're looking at all the push notes. Oh, and, and by the way, simulate user activity so that you get the push notifications that are that are in response to you using the application or not using the application or having used it within a certain period of time or having you know all the you'd have to do a hell of a lot to make a fake thing that behaves in a way that is sure to trigger all of these spammy push notifications then you're just left with a pile of push notifications that you have to look at and determine which ones are legitimate and that's hard for humans to do i mean app reviewers can't even determine if an app is legitimate and you know and you're expecting a computer in a few milliseconds to figure out if a push notification is in violation of the uh, no promotions rule. Um, so that's why I keep coming back to uh, the only solution to this has to involve some kind of uh, reporting by recipients. Uh, you know, I have received the spam push notification, report this application or disable notifications. And maybe like, you know, I was trying to think of all uh, less intrusive UIs for doing this that wouldn't bother regular people. Maybe, uh, when you turn off push notifications for an app, it may ask you if that, you know, if that app has ever sent you push notifications or if it had sent you a push notification recently, like within the past five minutes, it may ask you, are you disabling notifications because this, for one of these five reasons, and you can say spam, whatever, you know, like some kind of thing like that, that only some nerd will see that's heavily gated on the, the, the thing that we all do, which is something sends you a notification, you realize you forgot to turn it off, you immediately go to system uh, to system preferences, whatever the hell they call it on iOS settings. And uh, it's a gear icon. It's killing me. It's in both places now. Uh, <laughs> and, and you immediately go to turn it off. And, you know, iOS can detect that sort of pattern and can throw up something that says, you know, like, kind of like those annoying unsubscribe things like you're, you've successfully unsubscribed. Did you unsubscribe because and you never want to answer the questions? Well, if you're angry because something sent you spam, I know I would click the little thing or tap the little thing that says, yeah, I just disabled it because it sent me uh, an ad or something that looked like an ad. And that'll have tons of false positives from people who are just angry they got notifications, period. But the volume of hundreds of millions of iOS users is enough that, you know, they could do these in graphs and say, all right. This looks like a spammy app. Let's maybe investigate it and have five people a week just run that app on their phone and see if it sends them in ads. And, you know, again, we talked about this last show. Apple has all the power here. They can totally stop this. Like, they're not powerless to, you know, all they have to do, like Marco said, is care about it a little bit. And then, like, they they can at their leisure do almost anything almost any possible sort of end user solution really really lightweight and their volumes will make it such that it'll become super clear what the popular app that is spamming people is you're never going to get the obscure app that's spamming people because seven people have it installed but you'll get the popular app that's spamming people and then you send them a nice little note and say hey i noticed your app is spamming people play maybe stop that and they will stop and if they don't <laughs> their app has gone out of the store it's just you know having having such incredible power over everything that's in the app store it's just like they're they're wasting it by not using it for good Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, you know, as we get into the after discussion, I'm sure I'll bring this up again. But there, there are so many areas in which they could use this for good. For example, 
uh, the way the new Twitter app scans uh, URL schemes and maybe process listing, I don't know, um, but they, they scan for the apps you have installed and they send that list of apps that you have installed to Twitter and Twitter uses that to advertise to you. This is a pretty big privacy violation. Uh, people on iOS generally expect, uh, because the way iOS works in most ways is that apps are sandboxed and can't read data from other apps. They can't even see other apps. They can't even tell what you have installed, conceptually at least. In practice, there are two ways to tell if you have an app installed. One is if the app registers for any URL schemes, uh, then you can check for those, whether they registered or not. And the second is there's a low-level, um, some kind of syscontrol function, something like that. I don't know which exactly one it is, but there's a low-level uh, POSIX function to get the list of running process names. And so if, you're at, if you pull that list you know, on a regular basis, the chances are you're going to catch a lot of apps the user has installed in their currently running state. And so you'll eventually build up a list of what apps they have installed based on their process names. Um, that function, I'm not sure there's a good reason for that to exist on iOS uh, or to, to, re- to return valid data. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if in the future, um, similar to the way that Apple uh, basically removed MAC address access from those low-level system calls uh, in iOS, I think, 7 did that. Um, where they, 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 the call is still there. You can call it, but it, it just returns all zeros for a MAC address now. Um, similar to that, I don't think there's a reason why iOS needs this function to return valid process names to, any, to the app that's calling it. Uh, there's no XPC that's app-controlled or anything like that. So I, I, if, you, if there's a good reason, please let us know um, once. <laughs> that's not how this works. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a reason for that. But so I, I think privacy-wise, that's the like I think Apple should care about this problem because the I think the list of apps you have installed should be considered private, uh, private information, personal information that any one app shouldn't be able to get a list of apps in your phone. URL schemes, though, that's a trickier one. So some apps they have URL schemes in place for various workflow things. Um, you know, there's various reasons why you'd want to have and publish a URL scheme, and if you're going to do that, I, I guess it. There's no real way around that, around your app being discovered. Uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of apps that have URL schemes in place for other reasons, like some uh, OAuth SDK thing, so the, the Facebook login thing. Like some some plugin or component of your app requires uh, some kind of workaround, like where it kicks you to some other app, you sign in, and then it kicks you back to the, back to your app. And so you have to have a URL scheme to make that work. And so a lot of apps have URL schemes that really aren't using them for any other purpose besides that sort of thing iOS 8 and the new extension system makes a whole lot of that unnecessary. So I would actually suggest, and I say this as one of the designers of xCallback URL, I would suggest that URL schemes possibly be deprecated in the future and removed later after that. I think that there are better ways around that problem that they've designed in iOS 8. If Apple, if Apple seems to think that it's okay for apps to have a list of 10,000 known URL schemes and scrape all your apps and send them to a server and advertise to you based on that, which is what they're currently permitting Twitter to do. If Apple thinks that's okay, that's going to continue. And that's going to be in every analytics package and every every scammy uh, ad package for iOS. And it's going to become very standard of practice for apps to spy on your other apps and report those back to their their shady companies. And that's really not good. I, I really don't like that at all. And so I, I think... As URL schemes become dramatically less necessary with iOS 8, um, maybe the way forward is not to have them to remove that possible area of abuse. 
Secondarily, Apple could just have a rule that they actually enforce that says you can't collect lists of apps from your device and send them to your servers. Like, that could just be a rule. Uh, they don't seem to care, though. Don't you get the feeling, like, again, we have no visibility into what anyone is actually thinking, so we just have to guess in this void of information. Uh, but that, like, that there's this tiered system uh, in terms of developers. Uh, externally, you're all the same, but internally to Apple, if the Twitter app starts doing something spammy, Apple's reaction, I would imagine, is not to uh, send a generic email from some person that says your app's going to be pulled in two, week two weeks if you don't stop doing this, like what they do to other people. Who You know what I mean? Instead, someone at much higher level has a nice, friendly phone call with some higher level on Twitter and they have a discussion about it. Because it's Twitter. What are they going to do? Pull the Twitter app? I mean, yeah, eventually they would if there was some sort of actual disagreement. I totally believe they would pull the Twitter app. But you get handled a little bit differently when you're Twitter. I mean, I know they pulled Path for, for pulling all your contacts and everything, but Path was not as big as Twitter. And, it, it, like, I mean, they're, they're nice to everybody. Like, they're, it's not like they're, they're mean to other people and nice to Twitter, but it, I just get the feeling, uh, based on nothing other than seeing their actions externally without knowing what's going on in the box and maybe hearing a little bit about sort of the, uh, the treatment and who gets picked to, you know, come two weeks early and do a demo for a keynote or whatever, uh, not every not every developer is treated the same, and I think this is appropriate in general. But it goes against the sort of egalitarian, idealistic story of the App Store, where you know anybody can play, and all the rules are the same for everybody. It's not quite. It doesn't seem like from the outside that it's quite the same for everybody. So, I don't. Uh, for all we know, Apple has already talked to Twitter and say we would really prefer you not to get a list of apps. Uh, it's not like we're going to pull you from the store. We know you have schedules. Just tell us that in the next version you'll fix this and give us a rough timeline and we'll say, okay, and then we won't say anything about it publicly and everything will be fine. I, It's totally plausible to me that that could be happening inside Apple, but of course we don't know. So why don't you tell us about something we do know, Marco? We do know that we were sponsored this week by a new sponsor. It is Oscar. Oscar is a new kind of health insurance company they use technology to guide you to better care. It's at highoscar.com slash ATP. That's high, like, you know, high. Highoscar.com slash ATP. So most health insurers have, you know, other big corporations as their primary customers, not individuals and families, and it really shows. Oscar only offers plans for individuals and families. They're focused on the needs of the individual. They put people first, and they've transformed health insurance from scary and overwhelming to friendly and simple. Buying health insurance for yourself is a pretty intimidating process. I've gone through it myself a number of times, uh, some of which were before the Affordable Care Act. And let me tell you, that was terrifying. Because <laughs> before the Affordable Care Act, there were all these, uh, all these risks that you would take that aren't there anymore, where it's like, you have to understand all these different numbers and all these different conditions. And you always have to ask yourself, like, well, in which ways could this bankrupt me? Like, fortunately, most of those things are now illegal. But there's still a whole bunch of, like, crazy numbers you got to understand and everything. Oscar makes it as easy as possible. Oscar, they have these clear, honest language around their plans. There's only a few plans to choose from, and they're all pretty much the same plan, just like how much deductible do you want? Um, and they had this beautifully designed website that's easy to use, full of information, and very, very clear. You would not believe how bad other health insurance websites are, uh, unless you've used them, in which case you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, and Oscar also offers great customer service via phone or email, which, again, is extremely unusual for health insurance companies. 
Um, Oscar plans include benefits like free checkups, uh, some free generic drugs, free primary care doctor visits, uh, specialists without referrals. You don't have to go to a referral first. Huge time saver. But the, the coolest benefit that they have, I think, they have a 24-7 doctor-on-call service. So anytime, day or night, you can request a phone call and, and a board-certified practitioner will call you in a few minutes who can help you with many questions and ailments right over the phone. And they can even issue common prescriptions all right over the phone. And that service is free. There's no copay. There's no limit. That service is free for Oscar members. You can get 24-7 doctors on call. That's incredible. Uh, starting in January, Oscar members can receive credit of up to $240 a year for reaching daily walking goals. These goals are tailored to you based on your previous level of activity. If you want to participate in this, Oscar will give you a little wearable thing, and, you, and, and then you track your progress right in their app. Whether you're entirely healthy or you or someone in your family has a complicated medical condition, Oscar's plans will cover you. You can buy their insurance through the new health insurance marketplaces if you're in most of northern New Jersey or the parts of New York that are in and around the city like Westchester, Rockland, uh, Suffolk, uh, Nassau. So check their website to see if they cover you. Again, that's most of northern New Jersey and Metro New York. HiOscar.com slash ATP will show you more about that and let you just type it in zip code. Uh, you can get a quote in like two seconds. You just type in like your zip code and your age, basically, and that's it. Um, because of the way the healthcare marketplaces work, you can only sign up from now through February. So hurry up. Uh, there's a, there's these tier deadlines. So if you sign up in the next couple days by December 15th, you can get insurance for January 1st. Uh, if you sign up by January 15th, you'll get insurance for February 1st. Hurry up if you're into this. This is not the kind of thing you want to delay on. Um, if you need to buy health insurance for yourself and or your family, uh, this is a great way to do it. Oscar is a novel approach to an industry that hasn't been innovative in decades. To learn more about their plans or to get a quote, visit HiOscar.com slash ATP or call. They have a special number just for ATP listeners, uh, 1-844-OSCAR-98. So thanks a lot to Oscar for sponsoring our show. Man, buying health insurance does suck. I oh. It sucks even if you're uh, employed at a regular job like John and I are. It's still a pain in the butt. You know, so the self-employed thing is definitely uh, more difficult and usually more expensive. But the one big downside of employer-provided is that you usually have little or no choice. So you don't get to shop around. You don't, if, what if I like the Oscar and think it's awesome? Well, tough luck. You could, you know, you can't forego the employer-funded one because it's always so much cheaper because they contribute some money to it. But you have so few choices. You should grit your job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. So anyway, so uh, we're still not happy with the App Store, are we, Marco? <sighs> I thought we were past all this. I really did. I, you know, th- there there was a time when the App Store first came out, and over the first couple of years it was out. Uh, we had a bunch of bumpy rejections from Apple figuring out its policies, developers figuring out what Apple wanted, Apple at first being pretty bad about communicating their policies and then later getting less bad at it. Overall, app review is a good idea. Overall, I support app review. And overall, I think it has benefited customers uh, and developers and Apple. But there there are still these dark patches and, and there are still like, times when it seems like Apple is a little bit too maybe I wouldn't necessarily say power hungry but but they 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 seem to be too strictly or or overreaching in their rule enforcement in a way that doesn't seem to benefit anybody uh possibly even including Apple um that like they're not they're not seemingly looking out for any kind of clear user benefit um they're not like there's no major reason why at least that we can see why Apple needs to enforce certain rules 
or wants to enforce certain rules. And, th- and there are a lot of rules they enforce that are unwritten. And, and this, is, this is the biggest problem. This is one of the things that's going on now with, around these notification center widgets. And, and there seems to be this disconnect. These are two different parts of Apple, uh, two very, very distantly separated parts of Apple. So on one end, you have Craig Federighi and his organization uh, making the software and, and making the SDKs and, and you know, adding these great abilities to the OSs. Um, but developer relations and all parts of developer relations, including app review, are all buried deeply in Phil Schiller's organization. So these are very separate parts of Apple. And I think what we're seeing here, we, we've seen some speculation over the last couple of days from uh, a couple of blogs. In fact, um, I, I'm, I'm a, a, a Stratechery member, Ben Thompson's site, uh, Stratechery. I'm, I'm one of his premium members, um, and, uh, and I, so I get his daily updates. And I highly recommend these daily updates. They're extremely good. He is one of the smartest writers in our business right now. And he wrote one today, basically saying, you know, saying along with a few other things I've seen recently that it sure seems like maybe there's some friction here between Schiller's organization and Federighi's organization. And I don't know enough about it to say any more than that, but I think looking from the outside, it does certainly seem like these two different parts of Apple are not on the same page on everything. And something something is going wrong there. There's some kind of uh, friction or communication breakdown or different priorities. There, something is going wrong there because we have... The massive, you know, as we said this past summer at WBDC, the massive love letter to developers that Apple basically had this this past summer saying, look at all this great new stuff. All these walls were lifting. All these things you thought we'd never do, well, we did them. All these these things you thought your apps could never do, now you can do them. Now, a month later, after this stuff is out and in consumers' hands and these OSs are out and people actually start trying to do things with them, we're seeing so many problems and rejections from the app review side of things um oh and by the way also a third division is the uh, app store editorial team which is under eddie q so so you have the people who make the sdks the people who pick which apps are featured to be like great examples of what apps should be doing and then the people making the policies of actually enforcing those rules those are all three different organizations under three different svps inside apple um and, and who apparently have different viewpoints on things I don't know if you could say that the development is on is is in conflict with any of those other two. You could say that uh, App Review and uh, App Store editorial are are at at best just not communicating with each other and and doing embarrassing things. But engineering, like their responsibility, is you know in cooperation with whatever their you know sort of product design thing or you know whoever's designing what the product's going to do. Engineering's job is to you know implement it. And maybe I don't know if the product design is under that umbrella, but probably anyway, they create the APIs and every API they create, there's some expectation is like, we're just going to make something possible. Uh, But although you may be able to do a thing with these APIs, for example, read all the contacts and email them to your server, like the people who made those APIs, (laughs) it's not their fault that they, you can do that. It's like, we're, we're going to implement these features. We're going to make these APIs that make features possible. I don't know if, you know, I don't think Craig Vitteri sees it his, as his responsibility to worry about. And, you know, whatever APIs we make, obviously some developer is going to use those APIs to do something that app review is going to reject. And that does not necessarily imply a conflict between Craig Federighi and the app review section of the organization. I don't think he would say that he sees it as has his role to make those decisions because they aren't his decisions. He's, there are features that they want developers to be able to add to their products that are made possible by his APIs. There are also things that people can do with the APIs that, that 
the engineering side makes that are going to be against app review. And that is the way it's always been. Um, anecdotes about like, well, I showed this to an engineer in the, you know, in the labs at WWDC and they thought it was awesome. Yeah, they probably do think it's awesome. But again, they, they, they know they're not in charge of app review and they're excited to see someone do, using their API to do something cool. But I all, but I still don't think that it implies a conflict between engineering and the rest of the organization. I think the, the only thing we can say for sure is the embarrassing lack of communication between editorial and app review in terms of promoting an application and then pulling it while it's un, under promotion. Like that's just, that's the type of thing that shouldn't happen if those things uh, communicate with each other better. So there could be a conflict between engineering. It's, it's a natural, like we're geeks out here and we're like, if something is possible and it, and we can't think of a reason why we shouldn't do it, it should be allowed. And that's sort of a, uh, a, a sort of Apple engineer's mindset, a true engineer's mindset would be like, you know, well, the Linux thing, if it's possible, everyone should be allowed to do it. It's free, you know, anarchy <laughs> for all the Apple mindset, if it's possible. And if we think about it and we can't think of a reason to stop it, uh, then it should be possible. So it's probably true that if you were to pull the entire organization, the vast majority of the people who work in engineering in Apple would say, yes, that should be possible. And no, I would never pull the PCALC, uh, you know, thing for putting a calculator in the today view. But, you know, I, I, I'm I'm hesitant to turn it into a uh, vice president versus vice president internal turf war type battle. Oh yeah, that's why I mean I'm I'm careful to say that it's it's under these people's organizations. I mean there's like we don't know if Schiller is involved with these decisions personally or Federighi is mad about these decisions personally or anything like that. But what we what we can clearly see is that these parts of Apple are are not working together correctly. Like and and it, and it, it's so bad that it's leaking out that it's publicly visible. I mean, but do you think, like I said, I, I don't know. If, I think this is the correct working of engineering and app review and that engineering makes the APIs and app review decides if the things developers are using them for are allowed. Uh, our complaint is that app review is making decisions that we don't agree with. Right. And that conflict with editorial. Yeah. I mean, and th- I mean, that's like I said, that could just I'm willing to chalk that up to lack of communication. You know, well, but that's a, that's a pretty big thing because see, and, and this is like. This is coming at a particularly bad time for Apple because right now in, in this time, you know, late 2014, the last few, weeks, the last couple of weeks, of 2014, the Apple Watch is coming out soon. iPad sales are not that great. It is harder than ever to make money in the App Store, and Android is massive. And Android just released a major update, the whole paper thing or whatever they call it, um, material design, all like the Android 5.0. That's actually getting pretty good reviews from people. So what we have is, you know, Apple is enforcing all these rules. They've been enforcing all these rules for years. And they're, they're, they have this, this crazy position of power because there was really no other place to go if you wanted to make any reasonable money uh, developing apps. I mean, some people make money on Android. You know, it's, it's possible to, but it's, it's historically been harder. Um, you know, as, as hard as you think it is on iOS to make money, it's historically been even harder on Android. Um, and a lot of things just weren't as good on Android. Uh, but the, that gap is closing, and I'm not sure it ever will close, period. Uh, I don't think it will anytime soon, but it's a lot smaller than it's ever been before. Meanwhile, at the exact same time, you have this, you have the iPad not doing particularly well, um, you know, relative to how it was doing. You have immense competition in, uh, in the App Store that drives prices way, way down and makes it very hard to make any money. And you have this new platform, the Watch, that you're expected to to develop for in parallel and this is combining to make it a tougher sell than it 
previously has been to be an iOS developer. You have now more platforms you need to target. There's more work for you to do. You you might have to do um, adaptive layout to make resizable iPad apps if that, if that ever ships, like we talked about before. Um, so like, there's more and more work to be like a, a, a current, up-to-date, responsible iOS developer. There's more and more work than there's ever been before. The alternative of Android development is less bad than it used to be relative to iOS development. And you're making less money on iOS than you ever made before. This is not a good time for Apple to add more reasons for developers to become disillusioned with the platform. This is, this, is, this is strategically a really terrible time for that because Apple needs fantastic developers to do two big things for it. It needs good developers to push the boundaries to make the iPad a better general computing device than it is, and it needs developers to make great apps for this new watch coming out in the spring. And on some level, there's always going to be more developers. You can always say, well, there's, there's more people waiting. You know, when you guys all leave, more people will come in. There's always going to be a fresh batch, you know, like the entertainment industry. You know, lots of industries work that way. Uh, that's true. But if you want the best developers making the best apps, and if you want the, the boundaries to be pushed, if you want, pe- you know, what Apple said in, in WBDC, they said on a number of occasions, we can't wait to see what you do with this stuff. <laughs> And then they see what we do with it, and they tell us, oh, you can't do half of that. As long as you do what they want you to do. Right. I mean, they they need good developers to push the boundaries and to make fantastic software that is sustainable and that it, that takes advantage of the platform and that pushes it and, and makes it useful for people, and it makes people buy their devices and stick with their ecosystem. They need us right now more than their actions say. Yeah, if if we had to pick out things that are in conflict, it's not that the that engineers conflict with any of the non-engineering parts, but it's it, the broad trends within Apple in sort of the post-Jobs era is that in the, the recent the recent years, and especially in this most recent year, twenty fourteen, engineering's reorganization, which is you know has gone through a lot of uh, growing pains and change of leadership, and Steve Jobs goes and Forrestal goes, and things are realigned under new people, and Johnny Ive is elevated and all that stuff, all of that rejiggering has culminated in an engineering organization that, like you said, Marco, and like I said in my Yosemite review and everything, an engineering organization that does things that previously it had refused to do, but that had been widely, you know, uh, desired by their their constituent developers and indirectly by their customers. That is the overall trend in engineering in the last year or so. Uh, and it's the result of all the, you have, to, you have to think it's the result of all these reorganizations that whoever was opposing this is either not in power, not in the company anymore, or lost an argument, right? And now suddenly engineering is doing things that are that are directly beneficial to developers and indirectly beneficial so far to customers, because customers wanted these things too. Whereas App Review has not undergone, as far as I know, such an organizational change and is instead acting the way it has always acted sort of in cycles where a lot of the time it's dormant and sleeping and, and then sometimes the bear wakes up and bites you and <laughs> we've had we've had fits of that you know it's gone in cycles and why why is it awake now why is it sleeping other times hard to say but one thing you can say is it has not undergone the same transformation that the engineering organization has gone through its app store is not suddenly letting in things that it previously didn't let in let in it is not suddenly being more reasonable, being more transparent, you know, uh, explaining itself better. Like the only thing you can say for the app review organization is that they have cut down on wait times, that consistently the trend has, has been, you know, don't have ridiculous wait times for things. 
with a few bumps in the road for like releases where the Mac apps have to be delayed forever and stuff like that. But uh, usually it's about a week still. And it's it's you can you, you'll be able to say like it's it's about a week for like the last five years. Right. So like the overall trend, like if you look at the entire history of the app store is that they have moved that metric to be sort of better in a way that developers like and that indirectly benefits customers, which is the same sort of yardstick I was using in engineering. And so it's all the more glaring when engineering is suddenly doing things that seem, you know, that everyone would have said are no blame, doing them in a cautious way, doing them in a good app way, but making positive progress where we say, you know, iOS 8 is better for developers than iOS 7 was and, and so on and so forth. Whereas app review just does not seem to be making any progress. And I don't, I'm not familiar with the internal organization of app review or that side of the organization, but if it has undergone any sort of transformation or change in leadership uh that is the sort of parallels the engineering one i'm not aware of it and if it hasn't undergone that then that entire organization looks like it looks to me like a typical corporate organization with people who are in power who are stubborn who are wrong and who can't be convinced by their <laughs> underlings right like and and you're just stuck it's like well i disagree with you and i'm your boss the end the other interesting thing to go back just a half step to what uh, marco was saying is that not only are developers feeling uh, like we got a little bit of a bait and switch from WWDC because I believe Marco, you did, and I know I wrote uh, blog posts on the way back from WWDC about how, you know, we finally got all the things we've been asking for. We finally got all the things we wanted. And, you know, it's so, I don't remember who it was that said it first, but it's like Lucy and, uh, and Charlie Brown with the football, you know? And so here it is. We got all the things we want. Oh, uh, just kidding. And, (laughs) And so developers are obviously furious, but a lot of users uh, that I speak to, just regular people who are not developers, they're getting more and more frustrated with Apple too. It started with Apple Maps being crap and, and Google Maps not being available. And then it continued to buggy iOS 7 that all of a sudden looks different and people keep telling me how iOS 8 is buggy. And to be honest, I haven't really had any particular issues, but... That being said, it seems like a lot of people I know who used to be really into all things Apple maybe aren't. And and that's a tough place to be. And so here it is. Apple is the is in a position where they really shouldn't be pissing off their developers, not only for the developers' sake, but also for users' sake. Do you see any uh, do you have actual any non-geeky user friends who talk to you about applications? Are you just talking about like the, the luster of Apple's gone off or are you talking about users who notice the transmit can't send things to iCloud Drive anymore? No, 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 no. The former, where the the luster, the it, how it's always infallible, all they always work. But 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 that luster goes in cycles too. That's just the typical, you know, celebrity type build them up, tear them down. And like I don't I don't attach anything particular to that because I mean that go the cycle for that is practically yearly at this point yearly everybody loves apple and yearly everybody hates it like it's it seems to be getting faster you know oh yeah although you know to be fair one thing that does definitely impact customers is when an app is approved with a certain feature they buy it they use that feature and then they have to remove that feature because of apple's policy after the fact that's why i was asking i was asking if people if people notice that like do they read the release notes do they just get mad at the developer like does that blame even land on apple or do people do the type of features that get removed in that way are they below the notice of, of people because you know, the feature that was removed from Transmit, it, people who use Transmit are already probably kind of geeky and maybe they read the release notes. I'm trying to think if there's like a mass market example, like if the Facebook app could do something that everybody thought was great and then Apple removed it, maybe that would get some notice. But I 
I have never heard uh, any person who uses iOS complain to me that an app was updated and a feature was removed. I have, but it was not at all because of Apple. Um, everyone I know is furious about you not being able to send messages in the standard Facebook app anymore. And you have to download a different Facebook Messenger app in order to send messages. Oh, yeah, no, I, I remember that. Yes. And that was uh, and that blame landed on Facebook. And that totally was Facebook because they decided to split their own stupid app. So whatever. But uh, yeah, I guess they would notice that because that is a that's a sort of cutting an application in half into into two pieces. Uh, but for for features that are banned because of App Store rules, I don't know. Like, I, I, I mean, it just may just be the people I come in contact. It's not big, that, not that big of a deal. Like, again, a lot of these issues are magnified for us because of the, the, the circles we travel in. The Apple losing its luster type thing is more likely a tertiary effect of what Marco was talking about, where it's like Apple needs developers to help drive its platform forward. And developers are trying to drive it forward and every time they go you know take a step too far apple you know snaps the whip and says whoa not that far we don't want you to make this app too useful right like but we had to think <laughs> about this for a couple for six months or nine months or we have some senior vp who really thinks we should never ever do that so we're never going to let you do that it's like how do you, you you become gun shy you become you know sort of like there's many many articles from developers expressing their reservations about using new apis like even in best case it's just like Let's lay off this new API for a year and see how many people invested in it for a year and get their app rejected. And then maybe we'll get the lay of the land and sort of divine with chicken bones and, and other, you know, dice and stuff and figure out, I think this will probably be okay. We'll work on this for six months and see. Like, it's making developers more cautious and really they should be blazing their way forward and making apps that, you know, like like the stupid line, you know, the apps that Apple hasn't even thought of before. Show us your amazing apps. It's just like, you get the feeling that in some Apple executives' mind, they're like, make amazing apps exactly the way I'm envisioning in my mind that I'm not going to tell you about. <laughs> yeah, I have a picture in my mind of what an amazing app would be like. I'm not going to tell you what that picture is. Uh, go make it. And if you don't, I'm going to reject your app. Like, that's it, it, it's a chilling effect on, on development. And so, like, if, if customers are going to notice anything, it's going to be this multi-year delayed thing from developers being more cautious to use APIs and then l bring out laps, apps later and without more interesting features. And all you need is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I was thinking of, Marco already brought this up, but like, what does it take for someone to switch? What does it take for someone to say, well, screw this, I'm going to undevelop for Android now? They need to be able to make money doing it. And some structural issues probably need to be sorted out so they become less of a deterrent. Like for an iOS developer, even with all the devices that are out there now, you have to think fragmentation and uh, install base of the most recent version are a huge drag on switching over to Android because you just have to wait for so long for, you know, the you know 5.0 to be everywhere and then you have to deal with so many more devices you have to wait for some sort of consolidation well but even that is not nearly as bad as it used to be though like they, they did this crazy thing I, I don't know the crazy details of it but they, they, they did this crazy thing a couple of years ago where they started bundling all the apis together into the google play services which can self-update i was thinking like hardware fragmentations and screen sizes and and, uh, and cpu and gpu combinations stuff like it's, again it's a problem for really just games like for apps it's a lot less of a problem because it, the gpu is stop mattering as much for apps than than games well i know but like the reason i'm not just thinking of games what i'm thinking of is in terms of what kind of applications are going to going to drive the platform forward and do amazing things that no one had ever thought of and those are always the ones that push the system and it's easier right now it's easier to make those on ios because you have a better idea of 
what you're going to be aiming at and the install basis on a more recent version. So if you're going to do something amazing and advanced, you can make more money doing it on iOS and it will be easier. Uh, what will it take for those people to bail and go to Android and try to do the same thing? Because that's what you don't want to happen is someone to come up with a new app idea that hasn't existed. Let's take BitTorrent as an example, because like pretend BitTorrent didn't exist and someone came up with that idea and all our phones were, this is a terrible idea because it would kill your battery. But anyway, some some type of, <laughs> some type of uh, application that does something that would not be allowed on the app store, but that has a user benefit. Like users really like this application and this application would not be possible on iOS and it happens to land on Android first. And everybody's like, well, I would get an Apple phone, but only Android has insert whatever this killer app is. Uh, that's Apple's worst nightmare. Like if Twitter came out today and was only available on Android because Apple didn't allow something, didn't allow like SMS access or some crazy thing that, you know, whatever you don't want, you don't want you you want to have that app you want to have like even if it's something as stupid as flappy bird and even though i'm sure that was and on android too and everything like you want to be the, the platform where the great new thing happens and you can't plan for the great new thing and you don't know where it's going to come from and you don't know who's going to make it and you don't know when it's going to appear but you do know that the, the more you restrict your platform uh the higher the chances that this thing will appear only someplace else well and it has a lot to do with also who is using your platform you know like like somebody in the chat um, pointed out, it was high Indian in the chat pointed out. Like, you know, a lot of times the um, the the gotta have it apps that are only on one platform, a lot of times that's not because of technological limitations. It's because the developer happened to use that platform, or the most early adopters are on that platform. And for the most part, that platform today is iOS, and and it has been iOS for a while. Uh, I think since I since the iPhone was launched, it's been iOS. But that doesn't that's not guaranteed to always be the case. Like, Instagram launched on iOS first because that's just what you did in 2010 or whenever it launched. Um, today, I don't think anything would launch Android first, but it would be increasingly difficult for a service to get really big and be iPhone only today because the expectation it, 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 the expectation gets higher every year that you should be on both of those platforms at the same time. I would, you know, I'm still fine being iOS only because I'm just one guy and I'm not trying to take over the world and make a billion dollars from Facebook stock. But I can't, I couldn't recommend to, like, a big VC-backed company that wants explosive growth. I couldn't re recommend to them that you should go iOS only necessarily. Um, I think I think at this point you got to have both, and it's only a matter of time. Once you once you, once we've reached this point where we can say, well, you know, you really should be looking at both platforms. Um, it's only a matter of time before something big happens on Android first, and I don't think we're near that point yet. I think we're still a few years off from that being very likely, but the direction we're going that will eventually happen. And and I don't think Apple really cares about that or that I don't I think they're in denial or I think they either they don't think it will happen or they don't think it will be very important. And I think they're wrong on both of those if they're making those assumptions. Well, the other thing Apple has going for it in that area and it seems to be their strategy so far this is, you know, kind of a game consoles analogy is that they just got to sell a lot of consoles. Like <laughs> no matter how annoying your platform is, one one lever one knob that can always turn is let's just sell a bazillion friggin' ios hardware devices right because if we sell if we need to keep selling those because if we don't sell enough those would be like windows phone and it'll make anything for us and we just need to maintain some kind of within some kind of striking distance of android's market share so that it doesn't become that big of a deal because if apple had 15 percent market share wouldn't matter how awesome their platform is. Wouldn't matter how permissive their app review rules are. They would, be, they would be like Windows Phone. It would be like, yeah, that's nice. Whatever. You have some good developers. You make some good apps, but it's not enough. 
So they need to, to make good hardware and sell a lot of it. And so far, they've been doing pretty good on that. So it's giving them giving them the room to uh, to screw up an app review without as many consequences because it's just like, well, you know, like I said with Android, no matter how annoying it is, Android has such massive market share that if you are going to be a one of the biggest companies in the world, you have to address it because it, it, it doesn't matter how banned it is. You just have to. It's like it's more than half the market. You've got you got to go do it. Um, and Android is all uh, Apple is only a contender because it's got a lot of market share, a big market share, and it's perceived as being better and, and having customers who are more willing to spend money and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, Apple definitely has a larger share of the of the most desirable customers for most people right now, um, and and they have for a while. But I think I think the percentage share of that goes down every year for Apple. Um, I don't know that for sure. I'm just guessing. Um, and I I still think they have a pretty healthy lead. But again, it's like if if you look at at the at the sum of all of this of why somebody would develop for iOS uh, only or first, there used to be a lot of very strong reasons. There were a bunch of apps out there. There were a bunch of, um, like, this is where people look to get apps. There was a bunch of money to be made, potentially. All the early adopters use this platform. You personally use this platform. You like this platform. There's so many great things you can do only on this platform or easiest on this platform. All those advantages, or at least most of those advantages, still exist today. All of them are weaker, though, than they used to be. Every time Apple does a, does, you know, a chilling effect kind of thing, like with App Review... Uh, it it just it it drops that barrier lower and lower and lower, and again it's a slow progression. Not you know no single one of these factors is like totally collapsing suddenly. They're all just lowering slowly over time, and I, I just I fear that Apple it, that this is going to catch Apple by surprise if one day there starts to be some spillover and uh, and Apple just misses it or they didn't see it coming or. And then, and then, what happens after that? Like, what happens when a few prominent iOS developers really do switch to Android and really start making really good stuff on Android and not on iOS? I don't think we're very far far away from that happening. I think that starts to happen this coming year, and uh, and I don't know what happens after that. But I, I think the barriers that Apple built around itself uh, are substantially lower and weaker than I think Apple thinks they are. You think in the next year? someone's uh, prominent developer is going to uh, bail? Definitely. Yeah. Like who? I don't think so. I mean, I think with the watch coming, there's a lot, of, that's a lot to distract people. I agree. You know that, well, with that happened with the iPad. I remember like when, right before the iPad came out was when um, the Nexus one came out and a whole bunch of iOS developers were like, Oh man, the Nexus one, that's kind of interesting. And then Google sent a bunch of them for free. So a lot of people, including me, I should disclose. Um, and I started thinking, oh, I wonder if I should make Instapaper's website work better on this. Maybe eventually I'll make an app for it someday. And then Apple announced the iPad like a month later, and then we all got distracted by the iPad for three years. Um, that might happen with the watch. I, I, maybe Apple's banking on that. Maybe Apple's assuming that will happen with the watch. I'm not entirely sure it will. Uh, I, I think, first of all, you know, watch kit in, in year one is going to be pretty limited in what you can even do with it and what kind of apps even make sense to have a watch app. Not to mention, if you think Apple is being, you know, controlling and arbitrary and capricious with the App Store rules with today widgets, you haven't seen anything yet. Because wait till the watch comes out and they start denying apps for that for things that we consider invalid or stupid reasons, or they start enforcing inconsistent rules for that. Believe me, there's going to be a lot of that going on. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm actually honestly a little... And, and there's another thing, too. I, I think a lot of developers 
are going to draw that same conclusion, and they're you know they're going to see the stuff that Apple's pulling now with with the iOS eight things and today widgets and stuff, and they're going to look at this new SDK we got with Watch Game. And be like, well, should I really spend the next three months developing a Watch Kit thing, or should I just wait and see how the market shakes out? Because we're going to see a whole bunch of app review BS, you know, next spring when the, when this comes out, we're going to see a lot of app review BS over the first few months. Yeah, but when the watch first comes out, though, there's the gold rush, like you said, with the iPad. If you are one of the first apps available that does X on the watch, you get a massive, a massive leg up on everybody else. You always want to be there when a new device, especially a new category of device like the iPad, like the iPhone. So I, I don't think that's going to dissuade many people who think they have a shot at being there on launch. Maybe, but 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 again, though, there's also there's not a whole lot you can do with the WatchKit apps quite yet. It doesn't matter. You can charge ninety nine cents uh, for your app that has watch integration, and you get ninety nine cents or seventy, yeah, whatever, yeah. sixty nine point nine. Well, it's it's not really that cut and dry, though, right? Because you need to have your a, a standalone app first in order to have a WatchKit app, and presumably many of the WatchKit apps will be built upon standalone apps that presumably you've already paid for, unless you pull a Tweety too. I don't know. In any case, let's uh, talk about something else that's really cool. It's Backblaze. We are sponsored once again by Backblaze, uh, our friends that are in the online backup business. Now, let me tell you about online backup. You need this. Your family needs this. Everyone you know needs this. Casey needs this. John needs this. Everybody needs this. Let me tell you, you need online backup. It's amazing because there are so many catastrophes, minor disasters, problems that can happen that can take out your data on your computer and any, any drives that are physically connected to it. Um, or the or the any drives that are in your house with it, things like fires, floods, power surges, uh, theft, all sorts of problems that can happen that would take out your data with it. Even just like human error, sometimes like that's you know there's there's a lot of human error you can do. Like if, if your backup is a RAID array, you're you're so screwed. Remember, RAID is not a backup. Uh, anyway, so you want online backup. Trust me. When you go, if you're visiting your family this holiday season. If you see, you know, your your parent or grandparent or sibling's computer without online backup, give them the gift of installing Backblaze for them. So online backup is really, really important. If To use John Gruber's words, if you don't have it, you're nuts. You should really, really get online backup. And Backblaze is by far the best one that I have tried. And I have I used it long before they were a sponsor of the show. I've been using it for years. I, I have I tried uh, two other ones recently and was very disappointed in both of them. Um, for my network drive needs. Believe me, Backblaze is the one you want. Uh, Backblaze is unlimited and unthrottled, and you get it for just five bucks a month. So literally, this unlimited disk space, no matter how much you have, combined between me and Tiff, I think we have something like six terabytes now in Backblaze. It's a lot. Unlimited disk space, five bucks per month per computer. Backblaze is amazing. They have iOS and Android apps to access and share all your backed up files. So you can access your files on the go. Um, you can do single file restores if you want. If you're like on a laptop and you forgot a file at home and you're on vacation somewhere, you can get to your files that way. Backblaze runs natively on your Mac. It is not like a weird Java app or anything. It's a native Mac OS X app founded by ex-Apple engineers. Um, runs native on your Mac, runs native on Yosemite. Um, they're always up to date with new OS releases. I've never had Backblaze break on me with an upgrade. Um, there's no add-ons, there's no gimmicks, there's no extra charges. Really, five bucks a month for unlimited, unthrottled, fully native online backup for the Mac. Um, it really is the simplest online backup program to use. Just install and it does the rest. So really this holiday season, go to your loved ones, install Backblaze. Someday they will thank you for that. Maybe not immediately. They're going to wonder <laughs> what you're doing immediately. 
Someday they will thank you for that. Thanks a lot to Backblaze for sponsoring our show once again. All right. Any other thoughts on the uh, App Store stuff before we move along? There's always it, it, it's like follow up. It's like there's always going to be thoughts on the App Store. <laughs> Never ending pit of thoughts. My final thought, I think, is that uh, it's within Apple's power, and they have done it before, to smooth over the worst of these misfires by talking directly to the affected developers until they're roughly satisfied. And that is simultaneously the best and the worst thing that can happen. It's the best thing in that people come out of it happy. Uh, we get the features we want. We sort of, they, everyone comes to a compromise. Everyone walks away satisfied. It's the worst thing that could happen. And then it doesn't address the structural problem, which causes these bear attack flare-ups from app review and has for years and years. So I don't know if we should just be hoping for a larger crisis which will become a crisis-tunity for us to for for Apple to actually fix the problems that ail it, or we should be hoping for just for you know the the bad decisions to be reversed and to go back to the sleeping bear. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I don't know. It's just it seems like such a silly problem to have, but whatever. Um, speaking of silly problems to have, let's talk about time commitments. Um, and I wanted to talk about a couple things. Uh, first is fast text is not for sale anymore. What? I pulled it today. There goes your M3. I know, right? Tens of people a day are going to be disappointed by this. <laughs> That'd be a good day. Um, now I pulled it for a handful of reasons and there's a point here, but it's going to take me a second to get there. Um, I pulled it because. Aqua hire. Yeah, that's totally it. Um, I pulled it because I feel like I'm kind of kidding myself in thinking that I'm going to find the time to get it updated for iOS 7. And given that we're already months into iOS 8, that's kind of getting ridiculous. I'm getting to the point that I'm feeling guilty every time I do see a sales day of more than zero, which is most days, although if it's more than five, I'm doing a happy dance. Um, I'm getting guilt or I'm feeling guilty about selling someone something that's so dated and knowing deep down in my heart of hearts that the likelihood of me updating it is not good. And as John Chigi assumed in the chat, I'm really getting over that being a joke now. And to be honest, it deserves to be a joke. It is kind of ridiculously funny. And it's absurd that we are on iOS 8 and I have not yet updated for iOS 7. But in the end of the day, it occurred to me that it, it's really serving no good purpose. It served its purpose, which was for me to prove to myself that I could get something in the app store. And I did. And I am still proud of that accomplishment, but I'm no longer really proud of the way the app is today. And it's a little better on my phone because I've updated most of the issues for iOS 7 and 8. I still have a couple of lingering bugs that I haven't had time to look at. But, and I was talking to Aaron about it earlier today. I don't, I can't imagine a time where I'm going to look at her and now we're getting a little into analog territory, but I can't imagine a time where I'm going to look at her and say, you know what, rather than spending time with you and Declan, let me go and hold myself up in the office and fight with Autoleo. That is, that is a bar that you can apply to almost anything else in life and, and decide that it's something that you shouldn't do. But anyway, uh, why not just leave it there and have it be free? I could, but then it's still it's still going to be, oh, ha ha, you still haven't updated it yet. And I'm just I'm, I'm over that because it's true and ridiculous. Like, I'm grumpy about it, I think, because I know it's true. Like if it was like the who the hell is Casey joke, I still find that kind of funny because it's 
so hopefully not really true anymore. And so I've gotten past it. Um, but you're more famous than us now. I don't know about that, but anyway, but, but in this case it is true. And, and that's just, it's, I'm, I'm feeling super guilty about it. Have you done a lot of open source development or contributing to open source projects? Not really. I mean, I have camel out on the, on GitHub, which I actually wanted to talk about as well. Um, but in terms of contributing to like massive open source projects, I haven't mostly because the couple times I have and um, pigeon is an example, which is the multi protocol. I am client or library, if nothing else. Uh, this is the library that runs adium, adium, whatever you call it on the, um, Adium. yeah, that on the Mac. Um, is that the name of the library? I thought it was lib purple is the aim library and pigeon is the client. You are correct. It's lib purple and pigeon is the client. You're absolutely right. Anyways, I, I looked into contributing to, I actually may not have even been lib purple. It might've been, um, adium. And I started looking at this code and went, I have no idea what the hell's going on here. And, and I found that in a couple of open source projects I've briefly considered contributing to, the code was so crazy complex that, and I feel like I'm pretty good at what I do, but it was so esoteric and wild that I realized it was not even worth jumping in. And so um, I have, in short, I haven't really contributed to any established open source projects now. I bring that up because in this... Uh, it- in this implied time commitments of open source projects, which is the subheading here under this topic, what I was thinking of is my open source th- projects that I started myself or published somewhere or contributed to that I did years and years ago. And most of them are all still out there and they are far worse off than fast text. Believe me, <laughs> they are far, far like <laughs> things that I haven't worked on in a decade or more. And were never very good because they were written by, you know, the much younger version of myself, right? Um, and, I mean, I, before I even get into the time commitment things, like, that, there's code out there with my name on it that is terrible that I'm embarrassed by. But I don't pull it because it's like, that's sort of part of the open source thing. It's like, I write the source code, uh, I put it up there, and it's free for anyone to grab and use. Am I working on it? No. Am I adding features? No. Am I fixing bugs? That's a bigger discussion, but... It's it's super low priority, but it would never occur to me to take it down even, you know, and maybe it's like like Casey said, where like he doesn't have enough distance from it, either like the who is Casey thing where it's not true or, you know, he, he you you feel that there, that these complaints are founded. If someone complained to me that one of my CPAN modules is a piece of crap, I would agree with them as Casey seems to agree that FastX, you know, is out of date at this point. Um, but it wouldn't drive me to pull it. I would like. I don't think I have, uh, I, I don't think there is an implied commitment for me to continue to maintain for free this open source code that I wrote in 1997, right? <laughs> I mean, although to be fair, the context is different of having an app in the app store versus having a CPAN module available. But but if it's free, but if it's for charge, I understand that because you're charging people money, you feel bad about that. But if it's free, then, you know, it's exactly like the open source code and in, in, in the sense that like, well, you know, whatever. You get what you're paid for. You didn't like it. It was a crappy app. Delete it from your phone. You didn't pay a dime for it, right? If you don't like the software, it looks cruddy to you, and you download it, delete it from your disk. Fine. You know, it's it's the same type of thing. It's And the reason Casey said he was pulling it is because he felt, he felt bad or guilty when people would complain that the app wasn't updated. And it's like, yeah, the app's not updated. I'm not doing fast text anymore. But fast text that I did do was there. If it stops working on iOS, 
then yeah, pull it or mark it as only working on the older version. Like eventually it will age out if you don't modify it, right? Unlike most open source software because Unix never changes, like it'll it'll more or less continue to work, right? Or if it doesn't, people just stop complaining about it. But uh, anyway, that, that's how I feel about my older projects is that I feel the same way as Casey does, embarrassed by them, embarrassed by they're not being not being updated, you know, I, I, and and I feel the same way about future putting more time into it. Am I going to? No, because I have many other things that I'm doing with my time these days. But I, but my decision, given all of those things, is not to pull it, but just to leave it there, festering, I guess, on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, like I, I totally get this. I mean, I went through some of the same things with uh, Bugshot. Bugshot does not work. Uh, on the new iPhones for some reason, and I, I I don't even know why. I never really looked into the. I haven't I haven't spent five minutes on it. It could be a five minute fix. I don't know. The reason why it doesn't work is less important than the reason why I'm not working on it, which is that it made no money. Like it basically no money. Um, it made I think thirty five hundred dollars. The vast majority of which was the very first <laughs> month. <laughs> That's no money. Oh, you're adorable. No, well. Let me tell you how much money my CPAN modules have made. <laughs> Let me tell you how much money Fast Text has made. I don't think I've... If I, but, but I win. I win at $0. I you win. do. You do. But I I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I don't want to lie. But I am extraordinarily confident <laughs> it's less than $1,000. And I'm pretty confident it was at or less than 500 Over the course of, I think, four years it's been in the store. Okay, well, <laughs> regardless, I feel like a jerk, but uh, but you know, it it made a whole, it made that amount of money up front, and then it just stopped making money. Like it was be- it was down to, and I remember there was even a brief time when we were comparing Bugshot to Fast Tech yeah, sales, yep, and, they yep, were, yep. and they were fairly comparable. Um, so like you know, it, it it had a good month, and then it was over. So the the fact is, it, it didn't work on iOS eight on these new devices, and whether it's the OS or the devices, I don't even know. It wasn't even worth spending 15 minutes on because if I'm going to make Bugshot continue as a product, I would want to do a, a proper update to it for iOS 8, which would mean full photo library integration so that you could, for instance, annotate a screenshot and then delete it from your camera roll, which you can't do in the current version because you couldn't do that with the old SDK. Things like be, be an extension so that you could, be, you know, that they have the photo editing extension type. Why isn't Bugshot a photo editing extension? So like I would want to do that to it. I would want to make it like a a proper updated app if I'm going to keep it in the store and keep it working and keep it running as a product. And the fact is, it just doesn't make enough money. It never made enough money to make that really worth doing. Um, and so when I look at how do I want to spend this time, which is what you were saying, which I'm getting back to, when you look at like how do I want to spend this evening of coding, uh, fixing Bugshot which should really be, you know, at least a couple of weeks of coding to really do what I would want with it. So, you know, do I want to spend the next two weeks of coding time fixing Bugshot or improving Overcast, which is making money and which is, you know, seemingly a more deserving source of my time? Or if if I'm throwing around two weeks of coding time, should I even try a whole different app, maybe some crazy thing for the watch? You know, should I try a a whole new product to give that a chance to succeed? Um, So... I made the decision. It was not worth me putting any more time into it. I didn't want to put any more time into it because it simply wasn't interesting uh, and it wasn't going to pay off. Um, And the things I wanted to do with it were never going to be worth doing with it. 
and so for and so Casey, first of all, I feel like a jerk for ever making fun of you now. Um, but but second of all, but it was deserved. Well, deserved just maybe a diff- poor choice of words, but it it was accurate. It was. I mean, it wasn't meant to be insulting. It was meant to be funny, you know. But so now I feel like a jerk, and I'm sorry. But I don't want to make you feel bad. But um, I I totally understand what you're saying, which is like you can't foresee a time where you're going to choose to spend your time doing that instead of anything else with your work or family. And I get that. I totally get that. Like, if that's your reason, I totally support it because I've made those same kind of decisions. And I think you should be making those kind of decisions. Did you, did you pull, did you pull bug shot or is it free? I pulled it. It, it, I made it free a few months after I released it when it was, when it was clear, uh, maybe six months after I released it, it it, it became very clear after a while it was making like between zero and three sales a day, even at a (laughs) dollar. It was like, it was doing very badly. And, uh, and so I eventually, I'm just like, I screwed up. So so why did you pull it after it was free? It stopped working. Oh, well, so there you go. That's the Marco strategy. I endorse make it free (laughs) when it stops working, pull it. Because then, because then you're basically you're not putting any more time into it. But like for something like Bugshot, just because Marco's not interested in putting time in, it doesn't make it all of a sudden not a useful application. Especially for the poor, like someone was saying, uh, you know, this this idea of of when your app when you're not going to put any more time in your apps, leaving them on the store is free is bad because it clutters the store. No, that's exactly the kind of clutter I want. When I'm looking for an app and like I just want something quick and free. I want it to be an app that a good developer has abandoned. Maybe it's not the best app. Maybe it's an <laughs> iOS 6, but it's not going to be filled with ads. It's actually going to do something useful. It's not going to be filled with, you know, spammy reviews that somebody paid for. I would love to stumble upon Bugshot as a free screenshot annotation app that I needed in a pinch than stumbling on the 8,000 other free apps, which are probably not even screenshot apps at all, but some kind of like secret portal to, uh, you know, a, a, some sort of online gambling thing or something. Who knows? <laughs> so I... I I would say that you should uh, consider putting fast text back as free until it stops working and then pull it. Don't put any more time into it if you don't want to. But if someone is looking for an app that does what fast text does and they stumble upon fast text, it's not filled with ads. It's not filled with malware. They'll download it for free. It'll do what it does. If they don't like it, they'll delete it. Fine. Like, I think, you know, you did put work into it. It does do something. It is functional. Why not let people benefit from it? Even though you may feel bad about not updating or whatever, but I don't, you know, I I wouldn't spend time feeling bad about that because you're just making a choice about what to do with your time. So one of the reasons is I feel like it's calling attention to something that isn't my best work, which I know you talked about with your CPAN modules, but I don't know. I just, as I've gotten older and as I've gotten to be some kind of internet persona, I... I take a lot of pride in the things that I put out into the internet. And, and while camel, for example, the, the blogging software that I wrote that powers caseylist.com, it's not terribly great code, but it's not terribly bad code and it works. And honestly, I'm pretty proud of my website and maybe some people read it. Maybe they don't, maybe some listeners will read it and be like, why is he proud of this? And that's okay. I mean, if you don't get it, that doesn't matter to me because I'm proud of it. And I'm not proud of fast text anymore. And but but see, don't you think that's the way it should be? Like I've always considered it a a a badge of honor, a a desirable trait that if you are a programmer, 
you should always look back at the code you wrote in the past and think it's bad. Because if you don't, that means you're not getting any better. So if you look at the code you wrote last year, you should find problems with it now that you didn't find then. If you look at the code that you wrote five years ago, it should look disgusting. If you look at the code you wrote <laughs> 10 years ago, it should look like nonsense and you can't even believe you were the same person who wrote it. Like That should be true for the life of a working program. So the fact that you are no longer proud of FastTech as a product, as, a, as a, a pile of source code, as a whatever, shows that you are making progress, that if you were to make it now, you would do it better. You would see things in it now that that are, you know, that are more wrong or that could be done. You know what I mean? Like, that, I don't think that should dissuade you. Like, And yes, it's not your best work. Yes, it's bad that someone might Google your name and stumble across this thing and not see the date on it. And like, I mean, it's the same thing with the CPAN module. Someone stumbles across, you know, this my largest giant pile of public pro code and looks at it as all crap and decide that I'm a crap programmer. That's uh, like, I guess I'm willing to take that risk that they don't see the dates and, and, or whatever, especially since it, this is all other topics that we can get to in a bit of, especially since I am still actually maintaining that code. Unlike uh, you're deciding not to maintain fast text, but I don't think you should feel bad about it. just because you're not proud of it. I think, I think all your applications, all your endeavors, you should look back on and say uh, that is no longer up to my standards. And and I do. And I mean, I was, and here's the comedy of all this, how I know I made the right call is I had like half an hour to fiddle around tonight. And I ended up um, adding a feature to camel rather than futzing with fast text. And so that's how I knew that I probably made the right call. But um, I, I agree with you. And, and even as I was looking at camel earlier tonight, I, I looked at it and thought, Oh God, I should really refactor like half of this. But I I feel like with fast text, it's it's sort of advertising that I'm not good at what I'm sort of supposed to be good at to be a part of this show. S- same thing as my CPAN modules. What Perl code of mine can you see? You can see old code that's bad. You, what code can't you see? All the code I write for my employers. Uh, I think it's a little different. Th- to Well, to me, I find it a little different, though, because... Your Perl code does not directly relate to the things that you're known for on the internet. It's not like you're, I mean, the best analogy I can think of is like old crappy system seven reviews that are still out on, which I know you never wrote, but just hypothetically that. Well, if you, if you want to go for that, my my old OS 10 reviews are terrible. The writing is terrible. I cannot even look at them. I just, I've said this before and I don't know why I'm the only person on the internet pointing this out because it's the worst thing I've ever said, but, but people don't seem to notice. I use smileys in in some of them. <laughs> Colon, close parentheses in the middle of the text. Do you understand that? That's and that's what I'm known for. There's always ten reviews, and they're out there, and the the writing is terrible, the content is terrible. It's just ugh, I don't even want to think about it. But am I going to pull those reviews? No. <laughs> you can release special editions that have all the crap removed and a bunch of new crap added. <laughs> yeah, pe- people keep asking for uh, a, 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 uh, you know, a collection of them. And I'm like, that would mean that I would have to make hard decisions about, you know, it's like a George Lucas special edition. Do I take out the smileys? Like, where do I draw the line? <laughs> Clean up the matte lines and the dust and scratches. Does, uh, do the, the smileys count as matte lines? I think so. Goodness. So, so I mean, I understand your point. I don't know. I, to me, it just seems... It seems different, probably because it's me and not you. And so I just look at it differently. But I understand your point about making it free. And, and that's actually something I hadn't really thought about. Um, and maybe I'll do that. Maybe maybe I won't. I don't know. But it just I feel like I feel like it calls attention to something. I guess what I'm trying to say is the CPAN modules, you have to kind of seek out 
Whereas I think if I were a random person looking at looking to figure out who the three of us are, you know, for you, they would find your OS 10 reviews, which granted the older ones may not be great, but the newer ones are just freaking phenomenal. And for Marco, they'll find a laundry list of successful applications and, and projects and business insider blog posts. Well, there's that too. But, um, but, but for me, I don't want someone to stumble upon fast text and judge me based on that. And I guess in summary, maybe it's just plain pride, but I don't know. I just, I, I felt like the right answer was to pull it. I got bad news for you, Casey. In, in several years, you're, you're going to say the same thing about the podcast we're recording right now. <laughs> and it will be the thing you're known for most widely in the United. That's very true. That's very true. I mean, that, I feel like this is true of everything. Like that, that if you're getting better at things, which most of us do continue to get better at things as we, as we get older, uh, especially things not having to do with uh, physicality, you will look back on what you had done previously, even if it's the thing you're most known for. Uh, and think it is not up to your standards and that you could do better now or find things wrong with it that you didn't find wrong with it now. I, I think you should be proud of FastX. If I had an app on the App Store, I would leave it there until it broke. Uh, I think making it go free is uh, entirely understandable, but uh, I would definitely leave, I, I would leave it out there just, just to sort of like prove to the world that, like you said, like the, I did make an iOS app once and it does work and it did do things and here it is. And maybe you just change how you refer to it on sort of your online resume <laughs> same way you say like in my little section on my website like retired podcasts podcasts that i'm no longer doing right i don't know i don't think you should feel as bad as you as you do but uh you know you gotta do what you gotta do i also think uh you should put feet on the icon put it back in for a day and then pull it <laughs> you want me to uh, sell it for you fast text yeah sure if you can get me more than 20 bucks right, sell it to marco we, got, we need a reversal here we need, he needs to buy something instead of selling it yeah right um well why don't you tell us marco about something that's uh, awesome and then i'd like to talk a little bit about um like what john was referring to earlier which is the implied um time commitment of open source projects which is a kind of different animal we are sponsored finally this week by our friends at igloo igloo is an internet you will actually like it's built with easy-to-use apps like shared calendars, Twitter-like microblogs, file sharing, task management, and more. Igloo is everything you need to work better together in one very configurable cloud platform. Go to igloosoftware.com ATP to sign up. It's free for up to 10 people and very reasonably priced after that. It's incredible. If you need an internet for a group of 10 people or fewer, just go do it. It's free forever. Fantastic. igloosoftware.com ATP. With Igloo's responsive design, your internet already works like a champ on virtually any device. iOS, Android, even BlackBerry. You can review a document, post a project update, or change admin settings all right from your phone. Plus, when you design your Igloo, any change you make to the look and feel carries across all the devices because all the designs are responsive and customizable to you. In fact, their file preview engine is also fully HTML5 compatible. So if one of your coworkers uploads a proposal or a JavaScript file or a document, you can preview that inline, add comments, upload new versions, or assign action items all right from your phone, even if it doesn't support Flash or Java or anything like that, because it's all HTML5. Um, so Igloo was recently uh, featured in the Gartner Magic Quadrant. Uh, if you're a business, you know what this means. If you're a customer, this might sound like gibberish, um, but trust me, it's good. 
Um, Gartner's famous Magic Quadrant for social software included Igloo. They appear for the sixth consecutive year alongside tech giants like Microsoft, IBM, Google, VMware, Salesforce.com, and SAP. Uh, In a report that values the viability of the vendor, Igloo is praised for their responsiveness and customer experience. Uh, If your company has a a legacy intranet built on SharePoint or old portal technology, you definitely should give Igloo a try. They're really cool. Fantastic intranet. Really an intranet you will actually like. And Anybody who's ever had to use a corporate intranet before, that's a pretty bold statement. And they they follow through with it. It's uh, really great. So check out Igloo. Go to igloosoftware.com slash ATP to sign up. And it's free to use with up to 10 people and very reasonably priced after that. Really, free for up to 10 people. You might as well do it. There's no downside. Go try it. Uh, free for up to 10 people. Go to igloosoftware.com slash ATP. Thanks a lot. So the other thing I wanted to talk about is the implied time commitments of open source software. And I first became affected by this um, when I open sourced Camel, which again is the the Node.js-based blogging platform that I use to power my website. And I got enough attention from it that a handful of people um, had forked it and, and, and had issued pull requests and or made various comments on GitHub. And... I noticed that a lot of times I just didn't have the time to handle these in a timely manner. And apparently I'm trying to squeeze the word time into the sentence 34 times. Anyway, I see what I did there. Meow. Uh, So anyhow, um, occasionally there were, there were instances where people would issue a pull request, wait a day or two, and then like pull or rescind the pull request saying, Oh, I guess you didn't like this. Those people are jerks. Well, kind of, yeah. But nevertheless, at the same time, I feel or felt, especially when there was a little more activity a a couple months back, a few months back, I felt this like overwhelming burden put on me to get through these pull requests in a timely manner. And I probably shouldn't have, and this comes back to what John was saying earlier, but nevertheless, I felt huge amounts of guilt and and this burden because I wasn't getting through these pull requests quickly enough. And it was something I totally did not expect. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing in that people care enough to be issuing these pull requests. But at the same time, I was not prepared for it. I kind of thought in my head that I was going to just throw it out into the internet and then kind of walk away and never look back. And turns out that's not really the case. Yeah, so uh, the thing that I'm struggling with is similar only uh, over a longer timeline. And now uh, you can tell me what you think I should do about this. So I've got these C-band modules out there. Most of them nobody uses anymore, which is kind of the ideal that Casey was looking for. You're like, (laughs) you you throw it out there and, uh, you know, and no one looks at it again. And like if something like my first one actually from the 90s probably doesn't even work anymore. But no one downloads it. So nobody knows that. So it's fine. but I do have a couple that people are still using. And what you did back in the day and what you probably still do today when you had a CPAM module that became popular is you made a website for it. You hosted the source code somewhere where people could you had, where you had a bug tracker. You put it in version control. You gave out commit bits to the repository for people who you wanted to contribute to the project. You started a mailing list and like you just you built up this ecosystem around it. Pre GitHub. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is this is yeah way before GitHub. Like this is before SourceForge. Like when SourceForge came, it was like wow, this whole website does all this stuff for you. Um, so one of the actual time commitments of having an open source 
project like this is that I have had to move those things to new places when the old places go away or become crappy like SourceForge has. All right, so I moved from SourceForge to Google Code. I'll probably move from Google Code to GitHub. Uh, move version control from CVS to Subversion. Now I'm starting to uh, show my age here. Uh, I should probably <laughs> use from, move from Subversion to Git, uh, which I probably will do eventually. And those are things that's like, at the time you have those decisions, it's like, well, I could just leave it there forever, but maybe the mailing list broke or maybe something's not working or maybe nobody uses CVS anymore. So do I not put any more time in and just, you know, like remove it from the internet or just like let it die? Or do I put in the day or two to move these things? And historically, I've decided that it's worth putting in the time to do these conversions and to move the stuff around or whatever. And the second part of it is, so you've got this, especially with like the mailing list, you've got a mailing list. It's kind of like an implicit support channel where people will post questions and the mailing list is so low volume that the only person on the mailing list who can answer them is me. And over the course of a decade, literally, there's this mailing list there, which has degenerated to, I give free support for a module that I haven't worked on in years, right? So people ask a question and the, literally the only person who will answer is me. And do I, should I spend time answering these people? They're not my customers. They're not giving me any money. Do I have any commitment to help these people with their programming problems, which often have nothing to do with my module? Not really. And so I struggle with the guilt of like, do I just not answer anyone's questions anymore? And that's how this mailing list dies. Do I shut down the mailing list or do I spend the five minutes to answer a question? And then the final thing, which Casey was getting to is the equivalent in, you know, the Google code world <laughs> using subversion in Google code instead of Git and GitHub of pull requests and bug reports. Someone reports a bug. Someone reports a bug and provides a patch. Someone makes a feature request. Feature requests, I'm pretty okay with just ignoring at this point. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> if, you, if you want that, implement it. But then what if they go off and implement it? If they implemented it and send me a patch, then I have to get with like like Casey, where it's like, well, I probably wouldn't add that feature myself, or maybe I would add it, but I would do it in a different way. And the same thing with bug fixes. They sent they send a patch with a bug fix and a test and everything else and documentation. And it's like, it, it just always takes some time to clean those things up, put them in, test them, cut a new release, so on and so forth. And my decision so far has been, I will incorporate bug fixes. If you report a bug that's reproducible, and you have a test case, I will fix that bug or figure out what it takes to fix it. So I won't add features uh, for the most part, unless you send a feature and tied up in a little bow, I'll spend the, you know, 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour to get it integrated. All for a module that I myself don't use anymore, that is terrible and that no one should really use, <laughs> that, you know, that is really old, that has source code that I can barely look at anymore. I mean, I don't know what's driving me to put any time into it, and yet I am. And so I, I almost feel like that I'm like a slave to the lingering popularity of a once popular set of Perl modules that I just, I don't know how to, like, sometimes I find myself thinking when I get a message in the email list and someone makes some demand or whatever, I'm like, why don't you just implement it yourself? Like, if you're if you're so hot and bothered <laughs> to do this, like... You know, I feel like saying, "Why? Why should I answer this question for you? Why should I fix this bug?" Like you get, you get resentful. Like it's not their fault. Like I don't, I don't act on these instincts. But you feel like, and I'm your free servant. Why? Like it, it's like a Stack Overflow of one. Like it's Stack Overflow, but I'm the only person <laughs> giving answers, right? And and like I said, a lot of the time, it's you know, 
it's it's from either something simple where they don't understand something basic about programming or like the insanely most complex thing. I've got this and that and the other thing and they're all tied together like this and I'm doing this and that and that and I would like to be able to do this and can you think of a way I can do this? And it's like, are you kidding? That's what I do for, for a job. I get paid to do that. That is a very complicated problem that we would have to have a whiteboard and like days to sit down to figure out and it's like, oh, answer for free for me in this mailing list. It just So I'm in a bad situation <laughs> with these things and I'm mostly dealing with it by doing the minimum work necessary to make myself not feel guilty, which means actually fixing bugs because, hey, people are using these things. And if I don't want to fix bugs, like my final out is to hand off this module to someone who cares. Like, you know, it's the equivalent of Marco selling his his stuff to someone who wants to continue (laughs) the thing. Is there somebody who wants to take over maintainership of this? Here you go. Go with it. And I won't do that because I still have some tiny bit of pride in like, this was once a pretty good thing. I spent a long time implementing and writing tests and documentation, and it still kind of works sort of and you know i don't know i just, I just don't feel like i want to give it up because i don't know so anyway i i don't know how to deal with that situation it's a constant source of, of guilt and potential time suckage now marco how have you dealt with fc model because that's probably the most active of anything we've described i would guess um well recently i mean probably the most used thing i've ever done is bugshot kit uh, which i haven't touched in a long time and again, for many of the same reasons that I haven't touched Bugshot. Um, in fact, much of Bugshot's code is in Bugshot Kit. But uh, it's mostly because, you know, it. I did it. It worked. I used it for a while. I no longer use Bugshot Kit in my own app um, because I just don't really need that kind of integration of, of testing and stuff anymore. And uh, that's it. So I haven't touched it in a long time. And it doesn't really need anything. It generally works. And, you know, all the code is pretty simple. And if you need it to do something, you can just do it yourself in your own app. I do occasionally get pull requests on Bugshot Kit. I if if it's something really trivial that's an obvious, you know, minor improvement or minor bug fix, I'll just accept it. Um, if it's more than that, I'll usually just sit on it and forget to do it for months, and then eventually it'll become so ridiculously outdated that it, you know there's no point in accepting it. Kind of like old emails. Um, with FC model, it's different though. So there really isn't a group of people out there wandering around looking at like your open source library that does some really specific thing uh, that they don't need to do or that does some really general thing like your, like your utility library. Like I have my utility library open source like so many people do. Nobody uses it. Nobody looks at it. I get no pull requests on it. Like it gets no activity because there's not a whole lot of people looking around for your utility library. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it just like there's not a lot of value to that for most people. Uh, to get pull requests... You know, the you know they don't just come from the pull request fairies. Like they, like they come from people who are using your code, people who need the code you've written, who who value it, the code for which there aren't a lot of alternatives, or there aren't a lot of big, well-known alternatives, and that they need to be modified in some way. And then the percentage of those people who actually go through with the modification, or at least filing a bug report with you, or asking you about it, rather than just ripping it out and doing something else, or fixing it quietly themselves and never submitting it back to you. So for most projects, most open source projects, the reason why you probably get no pull requests is because like, just having open source something doesn't inherently make it like useful to enough people that they will start using it and submitting improvements to you. Uh, I do completely agree with John that it is kind of annoying, though, when somebody submits a pull request that is like well-intentioned, but either something that I wouldn't do or something I would have done differently. 
Well, ignoring even pull requests, what if someone sent you an email because you don't have a mailing list for FC model or any of these things as far as I know, sent you an email and said, hey, I was using your whatever, your utility library, FC model, bug check it, whatever. And I was trying to do X and I couldn't quite figure out a way to do it. I tried to do this and it didn't quite work. And I thought maybe you could do that, but I'm not sure if I'm using your own. Can you help me? What would you do with that email? I wouldn't respond probably unless it was a really quick response. You would not respond at all? I would treat it like any other support email. I mean, it, I get so much email, I can't I can't spend like a half hour responding to that. I know. I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like that type of email. All right. So and imagine if you got like maybe three of those a week for a decade. <laughs> like it starts to wear on you. I just feel like like because you feel so bad. Like I, I'm the king of ignoring people's emails. Right. Uh, but, I don't know about that. But even even <laughs> I even I start to feel bad because it's like especially with programming questions. Uh, and it happens on Twitter, too. It's like, I could get the answer to this question often by, at this point, like, I, I, it might as well be someone else's code because I don't remember it anymore. Like, you could figure <laughs> out, you could, the answer to the question could be, you can't use my utility library to do that because it doesn't work that way. And then you feel like now you're in a conversation with them. They're going to be like, well, can you add that feature? And then your only answer is like, no, because I'm not spending time on that and I don't want it. And then it's like, it's like, you just wasted, you already wasted more time than you wanted to spend on this. And it's, and that's the best case, trying to get out as fast as possible. The worst case is you don't know the answer and you'd have to investigate. And you're like, why am I investigating this guy's programming problem? You know what I mean? Like, are just because you wrote FC model, does that mean that you there is implicit support contract with everyone who tries to use FC model? Do you have to provide them support? No. Like, I don't think you do. But if you don't, you end up looking like a jerk. If you reply and say, sorry, this library is not supported. They're going to be like, I demand my money back. Like, what are they going to say? But they will think you're a jerk. FC model is actually a really good example of everything working very, very well. Um, so the quick version is it's a, it's a very thin, lightweight model layer. Instead of using something like core data, it's basically sticking a very thin layer around on top of SQLite, and you, you can do things you know like the database would. I use this because I'm a jerk, and I don't like core data, and I like to write everything myself. <laughs> so I wrote this thing. Um, FC model has what appears to be very few users. Uh, I, I think I would guess the number of people building apps with it is probably less than 10. It, it's a, it is a very small group of people. But uh, of those, like three or four of them actually actively submit push, uh, pull, I mean, pull requests, and they're actually really good. And, you know, and, and usually we'll discuss something like before a substantial change, we'll discuss it in an issue and then I'll write the fix, you know, because I'm a control freak. But, you know, when people people have submitted so many, like, little tiny bug fixes and little improvements here and there, they're only a few lines long, and that's all great. But you still are supporting it then, because when someone says, hey, I, I was trying to do this thing and it didn't work, or it would be cool if it did this, you are providing support, because your support is engaging in a discussion with them about the feature, getting at the heart of what it is that they want, and then you maintaining ownership by essentially saying, well, this is how I would do it, and this is what I would do, and then implementing that. So it's a support function. You're essentially implementing features at their request maybe just not exactly the way they did and talking to them and answering their questions about it well i am except well but if it's like a how does this work question usually i don't answer those and so sometimes somebody else will which is really nice but uh usually we i don't get a lot of those because again not a lot of people use this and the people who use it know what they're doing like it's not a bunch of beginners flooding in who like i'm i just started writing my first ios app and i stumbled across your thing can you tell me how to use it right because they they're not going to be looking for something like this they're going to be using core data because that's what all the tutorials use and that's fine that's they shouldn't be using something like this probably and core data is much simpler than your module so it'll be fine right so uh <laughs> yeah right <laughs> um What's great about this, though, is it, like 
the reason why I'm engaged with it, the reason why I, I react to the pull requests and, and I improve it, is purely selfish. It's because I use it in Overcast. And I will probably use it in any near future apps that I would write as well. Like, not that I'm starting anything. This is not a product announcement. Just if I would start something new, I'd probably use it again. Um, that's why I pay attention because it's improving my app too. And my, my needs for Overcast drive FC models development. Um, the bugs I run into, I fix an FC model, etc. The performance issues I run into, I fix there. Everyone gets oh, it. So this is the honeymoon period when you're still using it for your own work. I had several, <laughs> I had several years of that too. It was like my CPAN modules, for the most part, were written for jobs I had at the time so that I could write them, put them up, and then get the benefits. I was able to convince the various people who I work for that there is a benefit in open sourcing this part of the product because I will get usage from other people, bug reports from other people, and like you know, the, the open source model, and it worked for the years that the software was relevant. But as it became less relevant and sort of aged out, I stopped using it. Other people stopped using it. And now it's like in zombie form. Right now, FC model is new, relevant, ex extremely relevant in light of the various weird, you know, iCloud core data things that were going on, right? And which motivated its existence. Uh, and that, you know, so it's, it's definitely in the period where you are reaping the benefit of, of this being a module that is, I mean, it's not widely used you said like 10 active people but it's it's useful to you even if you were the only user you would like to have it out there just in case someone happens to stumble across it because yeah and and find some bug or you know whatever like it, it, even the you know the talking to the to the bear thing where say nobody ever looks at the source code but the mere act of you publishing it like you know the mere act of you publishing a blog post will suddenly cause you to find a typo that you didn't see when you've been staring at it for the previous hour when it was in your you know unpublished state oh yeah i mean FC model is probably the best code in Overcast by a long shot. And would you say that's because of the contributions? No, because he had to show it to people. So he had to clean it up to make it look not embarrassing. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's both. I mean, like one thing the contributions have, have really helped with is like the contributions will often be by very good Cocoa programmers who have been around much longer than I have at this or were just better than me at it. Um, and they will they will use a convention that I didn't even know existed. Like, like instead of doing, you know, preprocessor defines for string constants, they'll do the extern thing. Or, you know, or like using nsenum instead of defining an enum the old C way so that some autocomplete thing works better. Like, there's little things like that that I pick up from the pull requests. Then, then I start doing that, doing that everywhere. So, like, it's like I'm working with a bunch of smart people who are slowly and subtly improving my own skills by showing me cool things I could do that I didn't even realize I could do or showing me better ways of doing things uh, in various, in, you know, in, oftentimes in very small ways, but over time that builds up. I mean, FC model is really, as, like, it is by far the only successful open source thing I've ever done uh, and, and the most successful open source thing I've ever done. Everything else I've ever open sourced has been really minimally benefited anybody, uh, including me. Um, and you know, John, you're right. FC model is in the honeymoon phase now because I'm using it. Um, I stopped using Bugshot Kit, and so Bugshot Kit is languishing, and it will probably never get an update again. Um, if I ever stop using FC model, the project will probably die at that point, or somebody else can take it over if they want to, but probably nobody would want to. Um, and and that would be it. Uh, but right now, I'm still using it, and I suspect I'll be using it for a while. Uh, so yeah, so right now I'm fine. Yeah, so I guess my my way out is I just have to get better at uh, ignoring. I don't know if I can ever ignore bug reports, though. I can probably ignore. I can probably <laughs> ignore questions, feature requests, you know, stuff like that. Although that'll be sad because that'll you know people will. I don't know. It just it'll be sad. But 
bug reports. Like, how can how can I ignore them? I can let them just pile up. Like, yeah, this bug. I just feel like I have to fix it, especially because like you know it's that it it still works though. Like it's, it's still working software. And it's like it's a shame to let working software become unworking just because of one minor thing. I don't know. I I will probably just continue to limp along with the stuff. But like I keep hoping that people will lose interest entirely, but but they don't. People still sign up for the mailing list and like you know I don't. I don't understand. <laughs> I'm I'm conflicted. Thanks a lot to our sponsors this week, Oscar, Backblaze, and Igloo, and we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Cause it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Cause it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C A S E Y L I S S. So that's Casey Liss, M A R C O A R M E N T Marco Arment S I R A C. USA Syracuse, it's accidental. So, John, you got a PS4. Yeah, when did I get it? Last week sometime? I I knew I was going to get one eventually, and I kept telling myself I will get one when there's a game that I want to play, and of course I would love for that game to be Last Guardian, but, you know, I figured surely there'll be some other game that I want to play before that. Uh, when The Last of Us Remastered came out, I thought that might be the game, but I had just very recently played the non-remastered one on PS3, so that didn't make me buy a PS4. And I don't know what made me buy one now. I think it's kind of my, my tradition... Uh, pre-Christmas present to myself that I give myself before Christmas so I don't have to wait for Christmas so I can play with it in the vacation before <laughs> Christmas. That's a long title. But oh my that God. has become a tradition in my family <laughs> that I buy myself something that I wanted and and give it to myself before Christmas morning so I can play with it while I'm on vacation. And so the PS4 fit the, fit the bill for that because I was going to get one anyway. Uh, but I didn't really know what kind of games I was going to get for it. And so I just got a, a mix of uh, download a lot of downloadable titles because i didn't want to bother getting discs shipped to me or whatever and and i still think that they load faster off the hard drive i don't if that's not true please don't tell me because i like to keep my illusions but uh yeah <laughs> and i you know so i downloaded a bunch of stuff and what am i playing i'm not playing anything all that exciting i got i got destiny my son is already addicted to that destiny is exactly what i thought it would be it's fine the controller destroys my hands playing destiny the analog sticks are still in the wrong spot you got to use all four triggers at the same time it is an ergonomic nightmare for me i really need to limit my time playing the game which is a shame because i find it fun i think Destiny's pretty well done i don't know why i got such terrible reviews i guess people have higher expectations but i i consider it more of a long-term investment and my son is really enjoying it so when i saw reviews like 6.5 out of 10 for destiny maybe it was buggier on launch maybe just people have higher expectations but it fully satisfies everything that i thought it would be it's not really my type of game, but anyway. Um, but what what mostly is annoying me about the PS4 is, and I knew this going in, uh, is that it is not going to be a drop-in replacement for my PS3 because Sony concentrated so heavily on the game features that they're seemingly like obstinately opposed to doing media center type stuff. Like 
they don't sell a Bluetooth like remote for it. Not, you know, like a remote remote that looks like a TV remote. So you have to use the game. If you want to use it as your your own uh, Blu-ray player, like my PS3 has always been my Blu-ray player. If you want to use your PS4 as your Blu-ray player, you have to use the controller. And that is ridiculous. I'm not going to have the controller sitting there on the end table so I can control. It's just I, I just won't do that. There are third party remotes that you can buy, but all of them had terrible reviews. And a lot of them use an IR interface connected to the USB thing. And I was like, Sony, can you just make a remote like charge some stupid, ridiculous amount for it? I'll buy it. I just want a remote. They used to, didn't they? For the PS3? Yeah, the PS the PS3 has a Bluetooth remote that works with the PS3. I'm pretty sure it doesn't work with the PS4. Uh, if someone if it if it does work with the PS4, someone in the chat room tell me, and I will. Uh, yes, I, I control my PS3 with the uh, Logitech Harmony thing because that has a Bluetooth interface and that can do it, and it works great. Yeah, if I can find if if anyone knows if they want to send feedback to the show, a Bluetooth remote that works with the PS4 natively without any weird drivers and that works well, that's fine. And as someone in the chat room just pointed out, my very next point: no DLNA support for you know streaming video off all the various house devices in my house that can do that um and so you know forget about like having a plex app or anything like that just the basic media center type stuff it can play blu-rays you can play blu-ray movies on it and i bet it's a pretty okay blu-ray player although when i was researching this i saw a lot of people complaining with the very first version of the ps4 software that the blu-ray player wasn't even as good as the ps3 one so i still have my ps3 attached i still use it as my blu-ray player I don't really use it for DLNA that much because my TV does it now natively, so I don't want to turn on the PS3 if I don't have to. But depending on where video comes from and what format it's in, sometimes I have to use PS3 media server. Sometimes I have to use the PS3 to stream from someplace else. Sometimes I can stream directly from my TV. Uh, but I got a lot of things attached to my TV now. Like if, if I can't get rid of my PS3 when I get rid of my PS4 and I can't get rid of my Wii when I get my Wii U because the Wii still plays GameCube games and has GameCube connectors, like... I got five game consoles taken to my TV, plus Apple TV, you know, plus TiVo, plus I'm running at inputs here. So as I really hope that the media center type capabilities of the PS4 get better. Uh, but right now it's disappointing to me that I can't make a clean upgrade. Uh, and it's also disappointing that like, the shape of the PS4, if you put a PS3 on top of a PS4, it doesn't look right to me. It looks like the, the front of the PS4 is all slanty. And it doesn't make a pleasing shape. And, of course, you can't put the PS4 on top of the PS3 because it's curved like a George Foreman grill, so it'll skitter off. And the PS4 doesn't have feet on the bottom. It has these three little rubber curve things that make kind of a tripod that elevate the PS4 barely off the surface But because the air and the air intakes are not on the bottom. So you could have the thing flush, but if you put it on top of another piece of AV equipment, it will be blocking the holes more or less on the thing that it's on top of. So I had to buy some clear rubber feet to elevate it to let air get to the devices underneath it. Oh, it and, and I'm out of Ethernet ports by the TV, so I had to buy a new switch. And it's just, you know, at least I'm, at least I'm not out of plugs in the power strip <laughs> yet, but I'm getting close. Give a thing with uh, missing feet. I was just about to say that. Get out of my head. What? Missing feet? What do you mean? Fast text icon, dude. Oh, Ding. yeah. All right, fine. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the controller is an improvement over the PS3 one, but the button layout is still wrong. The sticks are still in the wrong spot. The triggers are better, but not that much better. Uh, and those controllers are expensive, like 50 bucks each. Oh, and the touchpad thing that they added is not a good touchpad, but it does make text input slightly less painful because you can use the touchpad to move the little cursor around onto the key things. Would you ever consider 
stacking the PS4 with a non-Sony system to make it stack better with your stuff? Or does it have to be stacked with the PS3? No, I would stack it with anything that that I could stack it with. But you've seen my setup. There's not a lot of room in that little shelf there. There's only two possible places it can go, under the PS3 or on top of my receiver. And under the PS3, it looked weird. And on top of my receiver is where it is now. But but I got some feet to elevate it up. Second question. Would you consider daisy chaining two receivers to get like seven more HDMI inputs? No, you don't daisy chain them. You can just get a switching box. So the switching box are terrible. Is why I got the I got this this receiver because I was trying to find a balance of I would have got the Sony receiver that had ten HDMI inputs, but all there's just this huge thread of horror stories about it blanking out and having all sorts of problems. So like I should link to that thread. It's gone on for like forty pages of people complaining to Sony and them trying to fix it. And anyway, I'm glad I didn't get that one. So I got this one that had all the features that I wanted and had six HDMI ports, but one of them is on the front. Oh, my TV has what four or three. Like I still have options. Like I try to connect the consoles directly to the TV to reduce input lag. So I have, I still have enough options for the devices I have. I'm not out of ports. Like I'm close to being out of ports in the receiver, but I can connect both of the console, both of the consoles, the, the current gen consoles. Well, the PS4 and the Wii U directly to the TV and the Wii is connected directly to the TV for input lag reasons. So I'm not really out of ports, but uh next generation of consoles i'm gonna have to make some hard decisions about what to do because i won't be getting a new tv by then if i can help it yeah but that's probably gonna be how many years away though it's probably a while off right yeah i know i i was i was pleasantly surprised by the general speediness and ui of like the i mean i think the ps3 ui is i mean it's not good but it's it's understandable and the ps4 ui is a mild evolution of that it looks a little bit more spammy and in my face but it's fast. It works. Got on my Wi-Fi nicely. It, it could use the LAN port. Like I didn't have any uh, weird problems with anything. It pretty much just worked. Download speeds were, were reasonable. You know, downloading stuff from the store worked fine. I guess like it is much better at this stage in its life than the PS3 was at this stage. Is like I can tell you that. Um, so I still endorse it over the Xbox One as a game system, and not just because I have latent Microsoft hate, but also because I. <laughs> And I, and for the nice. people, the doubters in the chat room, I still believe Last Guardian will ship. I still believe. You can't stop me. 